All right, guys, welcome back to the Yes Means Yes podcast. On this week's episode, we have Melissa Sawyer with Safe Harbor at Auburn University. Um, so I'm going to kind of let her introduce herself, talk about her roles. But first, um, as usual, my name is Faith Namshep. I'm the Victim Advocate and Outreach Coordinator of the Rape Counselors. And then I'll let Amanda introduce herself, and then we will um, go on to Melissa. Hey, guys. I'm Amanda Carpenter, and I'm also with RCA. I'm a Victim Advocate and Outreach Specialist. And I'm so glad that Melissa's here with us today because she's one of our partners. And so I will let her introduce herself. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Um, I'm Melissa Sawyer. My official title for Auburn University is I am the Coordinator of Violence Prevention and Survivor Advocacy. And so that's a long way of saying that I oversee both our violence prevention efforts and also our 24-hour victim-survivor um, advocacy called Safe Harbor. Perfect. So can you tell us a little bit about what Safe Harbor is and what services you guys provide? Yeah, so um, Safe Harbor is, like I said, a 24-hour, um, seven-day-a-week victim-survivor advocacy service through the university. Um, so that does mean that our kind of jurisdiction is a little bit different from you all. I can support anyone who could potentially go through our um, Title IX or sexual and gender-based misconduct um, proceedings. So we used to say that it was for current staff and students of Auburn University, but truly it extends to someone who is also harmed by a current staff or student because they could also go through the, the policy or procedures. Um, so if there's some kind of affiliation that is current with Auburn University, we can provide support. And so much like you all, we assess for immediate needs. We kind of triage, see if um, someone needs medical care or other kind of emergency assistance. And then we work to talk to um, survivors about what they need and then community and campus resources. So we've worked really hard to expand our referrals. Um, so we try to meet the needs of people who have concerns with academics, medical, legal, Title IX, counseling, um, safety concerns, housing concerns, nutrition concerns, and then whatever else they bring to us, we try to be pretty creative problem solvers. Mm -hmm. So Melissa, um, can you kind of explain a little bit about Title IX? Because a lot of people hear that being thrown around and they're like, what is Title IX? So when you hear Auburn University, you hear Title IX a lot. So can you just explain that a little bit for everybody? Yes, I can. So I'm not like, Full disclosure, I'm not a Title IX expert, um, but Title IX is a federal regulation. And, and so for any institution that receives federal funding, they have to follow the, the Title IX um, law. So that prohibits discrimination and harassment based on sex, gender, and some other protected classes. So we sometimes refer to um, the Affirmative Action and Equal Employment Opportunity Office, the AAEEO office, as the Title IX office. The Title IX policy or the Title IX related policy is kind of one small piece of what they do. So um, it does give institutions the ability to adjudicate potential policy violations. So there are lots listed on there. Um, but they include sexual assault, stalking, intimate partner violence, sexual exploitation, things like that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. Um, so I know with us, we keep like a count of how many victims we see each year just for like statistical numbers for our grants and stuff like that. I was wondering if 
you have this information and are able to share it. How many sexual assault cases did you work on in the 2019 to 2020 school year? So our year is not up yet. We go through August. We do August, beginning of August through the end of July. So we're right under 100. Here's the thing. That is an incomplete number for a lot of reasons. One is that we consult with lots of people who say, my friend, my colleague, my student experienced this. Um, so we don't always include those in our numbers because we're not working directly with the person. Um, and we know that sexual violence is one of the most underreported crimes in our country. So I really like it is important that you hear me say, I am not saying we had 100 sexual assaults um, just in the last year. I'm saying that the number is likely much, much higher. Um, you may be familiar, our campus safety has to put out, I pulled it up and then I promptly closed it. It is a security report. Um, and so that is when, this is what the news sometimes reports on. So it's important to, to create some context. So campus safeties or institutions have to publish these security reports where they talk about different crimes that happen on campus property. So you may remember some recent news articles where they talked about, um, you know, Auburn now has 12 rapes reported this year. That again is a very small section because it's, it's crimes that occurred on campus property and that were reported, right? And so it is incomplete to say that 12 rapes happen on campus. It is likely a larger number, but again, it's underreported. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. I would, could very easily say the same about our numbers. Um, and especially, especially now with um, the COVID pandemic, I can't imagine how many have gone unreported in the past, how many is it, four months now. So I would definitely say that our numbers would be higher and I'm sure yours would be higher too if this hadn't occurred. So you said it's like right under like a hundred was, is this more than it typically is less than it typically is looking back on the years? So the hundred, so we also work with, um, so we obviously serve people who've experienced some kind of sexual violation. We also serve folks who've experienced dating and domestic violence, stalking and sexual harassment. So our numbers are a little bit broader. Mm -hmm. I would say that in the four years I've overseen these programs, our numbers go up every single year um, for lots of really valid reasons. One, our, our line became 24 hours, like the year before I started. Green Dot, our violence prevention program rolled out the year before I started. Um, the Brock, or the um, Stanford case ha happened in my first couple, well, the victim impact statement, Chanel Miller's victim impact statement was published shortly after I started. So there have been lots of really important national conversations. So I think there are lots of reasons that numbers are going up. I do not believe it's because it's happening at any greater rate. I think there's more awareness and more people willing to reach out for support. I definitely agree. So going back to like COVID, do you think that this has like affected dating violence and sexual assault? Yeah, I can. So what we've seen and like what I know to be true is the calls that we have gotten or the cases that we now work on tend to be more severe because there has been police involvement, which is how we've been um, called to provide support. Yeah. But our numbers in general are down. I was expecting this fall when students returned that we would have a significant increase in numbers because of the delayed reports, people reporting what happened during shelter in place or quarantine. With 
ongoing COVID concerns with people still needing to shelter in place with potential um, remote learning in the fall. I don't know what this is going to look like. I imagine people are still being harmed. I hope they know they can still reach out for help. So moving forward, and I know we kind of touched on this a little bit, like before we even began recording, how is the university planning to assist with victims through your office during this time where we can't be in the same, like six feet with each other and like wearing the mask and all that? Yeah. So I think, I imagine we're all very similar and that we recognize the power of just like physically being in the presence of someone. We are hurting or when they're to be safe. And so perhaps the benefit of working remotely since March is that we've really worked out a pretty good system of providing support through telehealth, right? So even when I'm in the office, um, we've got two options. One is to be in a larger space sitting very far apart where we're both wearing masks. Um, and as we talked about before we started recording, that poses, that poses its own concerns, right? Because there tends to be lots of tears, people needing to blow their nose. Um, it is difficult to hear when we wear masks. And so I think we are opting towards continuing to do telehealth, even if it means we're sitting in the office, but a ways away. Um, so I don't anticipate our current practices changing a whole bunch. We're still going to really push for telehealth um, to protect everyone's safety. So while that means I may not physically be able to sit with someone or go to the hospital with someone, I can still call in and provide support in real time. Yeah. Yeah. We're basically doing the same thing at this point too. So it's, it's difficult because you feel like you're only being able to provide so much as the like percent of what you typically do. And it's difficult. But yeah, and there's so much more that we can't control. Like I can't control who's in the room. I can't control what, like there's so, yeah, it's just really difficult. It would be helpful to have someone in this space, but again, we just all have to be really safe. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Too many variables. So if I was an all Go ahead, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, and I was just going to say, um, I guess one thing that can rest assured is that we know, um, because we've been working with the same nurses, that we know that they are with really awesome people. Um, and so that's good that we all have, you know, that connection with them and able to talk to them. So um, that kind of gives me a little bit of peace to know that, you know, they are getting well taken care of, even though they don't have an a victim advocate, we're there. It may be on the phone, but the person they see face to face is doing all they can do for them as well. So yeah. that's, that's I a think good. There's also a benefit that we all have really strong working relationships. So I trust that the same nurses will refer to you all and to us. I refer to you all, you refer to us. So even if we can't all physically be on the line or in person, I trust that we can help people um, as a team. Absolutely. Yes. I think we're an awesome team. I agree. Um, so, Melissa, when we have, like, new volunteers come in and we try to do their trainings, um, we make an effort to make sure that they know about the services y'all offer. So when they're talking to um, survivors, they can say, hey, this is what Safe Harbor can do if you were a student. Um, I know just in presentations I've seen you do, like, y'all can work with, like, food banks, counseling referrals, accommodations. Could you kind of go into that a little bit? for someone who might be listening and this would be something that they would need, but they wouldn't know it was out there. Yeah. 
Do you mind if I start first by um, dispelling some myths about Safe Harbor? Please, please. (laughs) So I think people get really, really scared. Even in the hospital, you guys have seen this. Um, When they mention Safe Harbor is affiliated with Auburn University, they're like, no, I don't want it connected to Auburn. I don't want it connected to my academic transcript, anything like that. So even though I'm funded by Auburn University, I'm housed, I'm physically housed in the student center, but none of my documentation is connected with that student's academic record or anything else. Um, Just like you all, I'm a confidential resources. There are very rare instances where I can break that confidentiality. So we are confidential. Another piece is survivors get to choose how much they share. So because I'm not funded by grants, I don't have to collect any specific information. And so you all know, sometimes survivors tell their stories 12 times in 72 hours. They don't need to retell it to me. I don't need that information for grant funding or anything like that. So they get to decide how much they share it. They get to decide whether or not they report to the police and they get to decide um, what resources would be useful. So I always think that it's important to start with that in terms of kind of more pragmatically what we do with safe Harbor. um, If the person is willing to share what kind of violation they experience, um, we try to assess for immediate needs. Are they within a window for a forensic exam? And then we talk to them about that. So we talk about medical care. We talk about follow-up STI testing and options for that. We talk about um, referrals to the counseling center or another mental health, um, facility or option in light of their circumstances, insurance fees, things like that. Um, We also address academics. Again, you all have seen survivors like lug their book bags to the hospital and they're like, I've got a test tomorrow. So I'm going to try to study while we wait. So first of all, that's not how our brains work. Um, We don't get a study for like world history after we've experienced a violent crime and a trauma. And I never, ever, ever want someone to forego necessary support or medical attention in the name of academics. Like hierarchy of needs, physical safety is far more important. So we can um, help with some flexibility in terms of academics. Um, We also can connect folks to the Academic Support Services Office. They're the ones who house tutoring and supplemental instruction, academic coaching, things like that. If there are safety concerns, we can work with them to get their people finder information that is publicly available or restricted. Um, We may be able to secure short-term emergency housing. We can help with um, getting formal accommodations or medical resignations and withdrawals. Um, The Title IX or that AAEEO office and those reporting options, we can help assist them through those processes. We also assess for uh, nutritional concerns. So Are they experiencing food insecurity? Do they need help getting more food? Um, Is there a resurgence or um, a new experience with eating disordered behaviors or concerns? We can connect them with our registered dietitian. Are there substance abuse issues? So we work really hard to address lots of these things. Yeah. Well, I think um, we really try to emphasize to our volunteers when talking to potential survivors exactly what you said, like, just because you're, univers- you're in the university, you're in the student center, doesn't mean that they get any of that information. And y'all are far more of a benefit than anything that could like happen as a result, because nothing's gonna happen. Like The university will not find out that um, they're working with you. Yeah, and now I will say, I am located in the student center 
it's 1206. It's the Health Promotion and Wellness Services Office. We run 10 programs out of our office. We run, and I oversee two different programs. So I meet with people for lots of reasons. So if someone sees someone walking into our office, they're not going to necessarily know it's from me. Even if someone walks into my office, they don't know that it's necessarily for a safe harbor. So that can sometimes be beneficial. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Especially in such a crowded place as the student center, I'm sure um, that's been probably a concern for individuals. Um, so when discussing like sexual assaults, do you see any commonalities in the ones that you work with, I guess, especially with this college age population? Yeah, I mean, I do. I do think it's important to say that when we're talking about any kind of gender-based or interpersonal violence, you all know, um, all of these are violations, right? Like violations are just the umbrella and a policy violation and a legal or criminal violation can be parts of it, but there are things that can be violating that people experience or that other people do that are still violating and they're still worthy of time, attention, and healing. So in terms of commonalities, one of the most common questions I get is, was this really blank? Was this really sexual assault? Was this really domestic violence? Was this really stalking? Um, it is not my job to label someone else's experience. We do refer back to definitions of things. So if someone didn't consent and there was penetration, then that meets the definition of, of rape, right? And that is a question that is asked from people who have sustained significant injuries during the assaults. So I think lots of people have a tendency to minimize their own experiences or think that it's not valid. There's even kind of this hierarchy um, and people will say, well, at least I wasn't like really raped or at least I wasn't X, Y, Z. And I rarely find that useful or healing or helpful. Any violation is problematic. Um, and anyone who experiences a violation is deserving of support. Yeah. I think there is one other commonality. Oh yeah. Um, a lot of people will get the urge to call one of us and they'll start to talk about us or they'll start to talk about their experience. And then they'll say, you know, my roommate said, or my friend said, or my sister or someone else said, this happens all the time. And I think that there's a difference between something that is relatively common versus something that is normal. It is not normal for someone to be blackout drunk and have someone else penetrate them. That is not a normal experience. That is not drunk sex. That is not regretted sex, right? And so even if there are people in someone's lives who are minimizing their experience that felt violating, they should still reach out for support. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, so with college units, just based on our work with them, we do often see that most of the time there is some sort of alcohol or drug use involved with sexual assault. Um, and your victims, is that kind of like similar or not as common? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's pretty common. Um, alcohol is the most commonly utilized theory drug, right? Alcohol is a tool used by a harmful person to take advantage of someone. Um, and I'll say that because Drinking alcohol is not a risk that someone is taking. It is, right, it can be weaponized against someone. Um, the only consequence of drinking too much should be like having a headache the next day, not someone penetrating your body. So, yes, alcohol and drugs do tend to, to um, 
play a role or be involved in this situation. I think one of the things that breaks my heart though, is there are a significant number of cases where there weren't drugs and alcohol and they, they did, they followed all the rules, right? The rules that were given to keep ourselves safe. Sometimes people are hurt anyway. It is not a failure that the victim or survivor, it is not a failure of the victim or survivor when someone else chose to harm them. Yeah. 100% agree. And um, I think one of the hardest things, too, is when you hear survivors say, well, I just shouldn't have went to that party, or I just shouldn't have went back, you know, to his, you know, dorm, or I should not have done this. And you're like, this is not your fault. It is not okay what they did to you. No matter where you were, what you drank, how much you drank, what you were wearing, it doesn't matter. It's not okay. And I think that's probably the hardest is because our survivors beat themselves up emotionally about it. And so I feel like that is a large number of why they don't come to us and don't report it because they feel that it was somehow their fault. And then if people, you know, our friends are not aware of what to say to someone that this has happened to, it's very easy to say the wrong thing, even when you don't mean to. Well, you probably shouldn't have done that or, you know, and they mean well, but it, but it comes out really wrong. And that's why I think it's so important to educate everybody um, to know what to say when someone does tell you that, um, because the way we respond is so important. So, so important. When you said that, it reminded me to go back just a second. One other theme that I have a tendency of seeing, and I'm sure you all experienced this too, with so many high-profile sexual violence cases where there has been a significant delay in the victim or survivor to come forward. Um, I'm thinking Kavanaugh, I'm thinking Weinstein, I'm thinking all of these like really big cases. Uh, people don't hesitate to post their like really unhelpful and uneducated opinions publicly, right? And the number of survivors who have come into my office and said, I didn't feel like I could come forward because I've seen, seen my dad, I've seen my brother, I've seen my partner, I've seen my friend, I've seen my roommate say that if it really would have happened, I would have done X, Y, Z. Or I've seen them say that people lie about this all the time and I don't think they're going to believe me. And so I think it's super important for people to be aware that when you're going to comment on a big profile, high profile case, you don't know how many survivors in your life that you're impacting with your opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely agree. Sometimes I'll like just be like watching YouTube videos of like survivor interviews and I look at the comments and it's just so hard for me to believe that it's 2020 and people are still saying things like, well, we all know that great victims always are lying or after something. And I'm like, have you looked at a statistic? <laughs> have you worked with it? Like, it's just, it's so disheartening at times. And, I definitely agree with Amanda on that education piece. That's really what we need um, is to talk to people. But um, so you work a lot on campus. Do, what kind of outreach events do you guys typically do? Um, just to kind of get your word out there. People know who you are. So we are currently a green dot school. Um, there are lots of different bystander intervention, violence prevention programs. The one, the specific curriculum that we work or that we use is Green Dot. Um, and so that's where we talk to people, not as potential victims or potential perpetrators, but as bystanders who are witnessing lots of things all the time about ways they can pay attention to potential situations that could cause harm and ways they can safely intervene. 
So when we're talking about bystander intervention, we're not talking about like hopping in between people, like at a bar or a party um, to stop something. We're talking about how can you um, directly intervene or ask if people need support or check in on someone? How can you delegate to someone who's better positioned to help? How can you create a distraction? But there are lots of other ways that people can engage in um, in effective intervention. So when we're talking about Green Dot, we have what's called overviews, and then we have trainings, and then we have outreach. So overviews are like 15 minutes to an hour long, where we give kind of the bones of what is Green Dot, why do we do it, how can you utilize these um, skills and practice. With the trainings, the trainings are like four hours long. It is a significant amount of time. So we try to reach 10 to 15% of the population um, and we use social diffusion theory. So if we really train up some people who are really motivated, um, these skills and values will spread because they'll just go utilize those skills. And then we have outreach. That's concourse events or social media campaigns, um, things like that. So we do lots and lots and lots of touch points with folks, Camp War Eagle orientations. Um, we work with panel and we work with Greek life, um, particularly among their new members. Um, we come into lots of like classrooms. So there are lots of touch points for Green Dot. Another thing that I, I do that um, is probably one of my favorite in terms of presentations is we talk about supporting survivors of sexual violence in particular. And we kind of start to break down what Rebecca Campbell calls the neurobiology of sexual trauma, which is a fancy way of saying like what happens in our brains when, when someone experiences sexual violence, what that can look like to an outside person and ways that we can provide support. And so that has been really helpful because I've had lots of people come up to me afterwards and like, I had no idea. And I said some of those things that weren't unhelpful. And now I see, now I know I can do, I can do better. I can do differently. So. Those, I, we do other, we partner with lots of organizations, but that's a good kind of overview. Yeah, um, and I will say to anyone who is an Auburn University student or like another university that does the Green Dot training, I actually have attended the four hour long training before. It is 100% worth it. It did not feel like four hours. It was fun, it was interactive, and I felt like I really gained a lot of information from it. So I would highly suggest it to someone, and it's a great resume builder, so do it, please. We are, this is a little risky to share because I don't know how we're going to, like, I don't know what's going to happen. So we'll see. Um, just roll the dice really quick. Rutgers University has um, this healthy relationship series. It's a four-part series. Um, one is about consent. One is about online dating. One is about healthy relationships. One is about breaking up. And those are like little one-hour interactive sessions. And so we're starting to pilot um, that with their curriculum. So we're really excited. And they have kind of fun names. Like the breakup one is called Thank You Next. And like, I yeah, don't know. Yeah. So we talked about how many victims or survivors or victims that you had worked with um, through the 2019, 2020 year. How many hotline calls would you say you've gotten? That's a good question because we don't, the way we track is not so much about calls. Um, we, so out of like the around 100 sexual assault um, survivors we've served, some of those have ser only worked with us maybe once or twice. Um, and then some of them, like I've worked, I can think of one person I've probably put in 150 hours, right? And so we do track now, we do a better job of tracking the amount of time per client or per Survivor. 
um, we don't really track the number of phone calls, just like we don't track the number of emails, which is a ton. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you do that a lot of emails? Did you say emails? Yeah. So we um, do have a safe harbor like email account that people can use for non-emergencies, and then there is like we use email for non-emergency and non-sensitive information. So when we're figuring out academic stuff, when we're scheduling to meet, things like that, it's not uncommon for us to use email if the client is willing to use email. So I send lots of emails with people. Um, I don't necessarily count every one. So that isn't really a statistic I keep. I was just curious because I know which is probably like a nice benefit of you not working under a grant. Like we have to document every interaction um, to the T. So that must be nice. And that probably also does kind of like add in a little piece of like confidentiality there too. Um, do you do notes for every interaction? Um, but I think you all take a lot more hotline calls where people are just wanting to get support and then they never come in person. The vast majority of our hotline calls are followed up with an in-person appointment. So the number of people we serve is accurate and is um, that's just not broken down by the way they got a hold of us. Okay. Yeah. Yes, we we would I would say we get a lot more just calls, hey, this happened to me. I just need to talk. Mm -hmm. And sometimes like we do have a, a few that call, you know, that we've never actually met in person, but we talk to them a lot on the phone. Um, and then we do have those that they call and then we never hear from them again, um, which, you know, we give them the resources and try to help them. And there, there's been a couple of times when they've called and, you know, they had just been, you know, assaulted and we will help guide them. Okay. This is, you know, what, what you should do. This would be, you know, beneficial for you to do. Um, and then they'll go to the hospital and then we'll meet them there. And then they'll call us back when they get there. Because um, there's been times where I've actually been at the hospital before the hospital even called. And they're like, wow, that was really fast. And I'm like, well, because they went ahead and called and we met them there. But that doesn't happen a lot. I wish it, you know, that we did make more face-to-face -face contact with those that call us. But um, as long as they're calling and talking, sometimes that's all that matters. So, yeah. I mean, so and I think I said, I think that that's where we have um, some good overlap, but then some differences. So you all are obviously like the experts in the hospital and the legal system. I'm more of an expert on campus. You all also provide, I mean, you serve how many counties? Four. Four counties, right? So of course you're going to get calls. It is the exception to the rule when we have someone who is a true safe harbor case and who does not follow up with like an actual service. Yeah. And we, I think too, because like people do see that y'all are affiliated with the university. They just see us as like a center. I mean, we've gotten calls from like Washington, out of country, like crazy things, which you know what? I mean, call us, please. Yeah. please. But I, I definitely think that because they just see rate crisis center and they call, but I'm sure with you, they see a oh, university. I'm not a university student. So I could definitely um, see that. Um, so talking about like kind of like the university involvement with y'all, do you think that survivors are afraid or it would be kind of be like detrimental for them to reach out or feel like it would because they'd be afraid that Title IX would have to get involved? So 
Yes, I have a couple of thoughts um, about that. Mm -hmm. One, I think that there is, I see more national discussion of concerns about Title IX, particularly now that the final regs have been released. I don't hear as much discussion among our current students about like these really disheartening final regs that have been released, um, but I'm sure it's a concern. I'm sure it's on some people's radar. At bare minimum, I'm positive a lot of survivors have heard that lots of universities have not historically done a good job of protecting them and adjudicating their cases. So I'm sure that's a factor. I do think that there is some confusion about when does Title IX get involved? When do they have to do things? Is this different than the police? So maybe it's important for me to share that most, but not all, staff on campus are what are called responsible employees. Um, they have to report to Title IX, um, although this may change in the final reg. So if, if as in case a survivor is listening and they've disclosed to a mentor or a faculty member or a GA that they were assaulted and the person says, oh, I have to tell Title IX, what's going to happen is the Title IX office will take the report, they'll read over it and see if there are any like significant risk factors. Like, is our community in danger or at risk right now? If, if that's the case, there may be a timely warning sent out by the campus safety or they may have to move forward with something. But generally, what that's going to result in is a, an email and or a phone call offering support and services. So it is a little bit less scary than I think a lot of people think, although when they get the formal and official email from the, the AAEO office, I think a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, am I in trouble? Like, what do I have to do? Right. What has to respond? Um, mm -hmm. but our AAEO office does have to reach out. Okay. I don't yeah. know if that Yeah, no, that does. That does. Um, well, we've kind of like reached the end of our questions and we like to, at the end of the podcast, ask our guests if they would like to share a message of support or something that they would like to say to survivors of sexual assault. Um, before that, do you have any other thing you want to discuss or comment on or just something you think needs to be said? I just, I think that maybe it would help for, for folks, whether it's survivors or loved ones of survivors to know that you can call and just get a sense of what the possibilities are, the services, the kind of support, I love it when parents call and say, I just want to know how to support my person. Um, that doesn't happen enough. Um, and when they want to read and when they want to be trauma informed and, and really careful in their support, that is useful. So I think I would just urge people to call when in doubt and just be really careful. Awesome. So what is your final message for survivors, Melissa? So I think I would say that um, I, one of the, I mentioned the neurobiology of sexual assault earlier. And one of the things that I have taken away from Rebecca Campbell's work is that your brain did exactly what it was designed to do to survive. And I am so thankful it did. Even if it makes things complicated or confusing now, I'm so glad you survived. And I would also hope that they could hear me when I say the way it feels right this second isn't how it will feel forever. Um, there can be a lot of hope and healing. Um, and there's a lot of space for someone to learn or to regain uh, trust in the world and people and to feel safe and joyful and, and happy again. Um, 
I borrow words from Sarah Super, who's an amazing survivor and advocate um, in Minnesota. And when she leads these really incredible um, groups for survivors, when someone discloses and speaks for the first time, um, everyone responds with, you are strong, you are courageous, you are inspiring. And so those are words that I end meetings with survivors with when we do um, when we do some special events. Um, and I, I do think it's, I think it's true. I think you are strong. I think you are courageous and I think you are inspiring. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is really um, yeah. It was really great to have you on the podcast. I feel like this information is going to be really beneficial, especially because I know a lot of people just don't know about safe Harbor. And I think if they did, that they would be more willing to reach out and it's just less scary having more information about what. Yeah. There are lots of people when they finally come into the office, like, oh, you're not scary. And it's like, no, I'm not. Like, there are several ways that they can reach out to, to us. Can I share them really quick? Yes, of course. And when she puts them, I'm also going to put them in the comment box down below. You guys don't even have to write or remember anything. Okay, great. Um, so our 24-hour line is 334-844-SAFE. So 7233. Um, the... Email address for non-emergencies is just safeharbor at auburn.edu. And when um, we can physically be in person, our office is 1206 in the student center. It's on the first floor. Perfect. All right. And like I said, I'm going to have those down below for you guys. And I'll also include a link to the um, Safe Harbor website um, on the Auburn University page. But again, thank you so much for joining us uh, this week, Melissa. And we will see you guys next week. Bye. Thank you so much, Melissa.